We are in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is a story of Elijah. If you are new with us, we've been working our way through his life story and looking at various uh, themes in his life that we believe uh, instruct us about our own spiritual development, our own spiritual ministry. So we have the life of Elijah as a model for spiritual development. And here in chapter uh, 19, Elijah goes from the top of Mount Carmel to the depths of the desert floor. And what we find in this passage is great despair. And we need to look at that and understand how that fits into our idea, uh, our model of spiritual development. Is there any place for despair? Is there any place for defeat, discouragement, and even depression in uh, spiritual development? Or does it stand outside of that and need to be addressed in a different way? And so, Father, we pray for uh, just a clarity from your word uh, that we would be instructed and aware of what you have to say to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we were, uh, we just said we picked three worship songs, and I, I want to remind you again of what we just, we just sang, because I think they brilliantly set up the message this morning. Uh, in one of the songs we sang, He's coming on the clouds, king of king, kings of, and kingdoms will bow down and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise for who can stop the Lord Almighty. Broken hearts uh, that have been chained uh, will declare the praise of God. Did you catch that? Broken people declaring the praise of God. Not whole, perfect, victorious uh, no problem kind of people. Um, Lord, I come and I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart. Is that true? I mean, falling apart without God, you're the one that guides my heart. So when my heart goes astray, when my heart is suffering, you guide my heart. Uh, God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see the things you do. God, I look to you, you're where my help comes from. You, you give me wisdom. You know just what to do. So we look to God for wisdom. We understand that in life, both for the follower of Christ and those that don't have faith, uh, fall into hard times. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, it's in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah has just conquered, uh, has had his greatest con con um, victory. He has conquered uh, the, the prophets of Baal, the influencers that were set, released in Israel to turn the hearts of the people away from God. Things in our society and culture turn our hearts away from God. They're called idols. We've dealt with that. We talked about that. Idolatry is anything that we have, we have put in our lives that we make more important than God. And, and as we talked about, there's a mixture we're, we're made with mixture. My, my friend, and, and co uh, friend and pastor, Josh White, would say, we are mixture, which means there's both the good of God's influence, but also the cultural influence that impacts us. And we have both, and that's reality. Elijah was able to conquer the prophets of Baal and turn the hearts of the people back to God. And as soon as that happened, here's what happened next. 1 Kings chapter 19. 
Ahab told Jezebel that all Elijah had done, he, prayed, he just slayed the Jezebel's prophets. So Jezebel sent these 850 individuals to school and trained them to become these great influencers among the people. And now they're gone. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah. So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So her threat is a death threat, that by tomorrow this time, I will have your head on a platter, just as you destroyed uh, all my prophets. And he was afraid. He rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, so it's the southern part of Israel, and left his servants there. It's about 168 kilometers from Mount Carmel. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. I am not better than my father's. He lay down, slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said, arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was a at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in, in the strength of the food of 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, further south into the desert in the Sinai Peninsula, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. Behold, then the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He said, I've, I've been very zealous of the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down all your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. Now, what we find in this section of Scripture, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, is Elijah falls into deep depression. I don't know how else to say it. He goes from this level of fear into um, some change within his own mind and thinking and wants to die. He actually says, I want to die. And then he begins to tell the Lord things that aren't true. So he's really, in a, he's really in a tough spot. And we have to back up a second because this is Elijah. This is the guy that has been teaching us all along the way how to mature and grow in our faith. I mean, the guy, the guy felt a calling on his life and found a great purpose and left Gilead to go serve the Lord. So he, he identified, he found his identity, his real purpose. He's obedient. He goes to Ahab, announces this, this, uh, this three-and-a-half-year uh, drought as punishment to try to correct the nation to bring them back. God often brings hardship to bring correction, doesn't he? And so he announces that, and then he goes into a series of, of, of three-and-a-half years, a time of three-and-a-half years of waiting. And he's obedient in that waiting, and God works mightily in that waiting. Goes back to Ahab, tells him it's going to rain again, Slays the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. Great victory for the Lord. Another great lesson. And then falls into great defeat. Followed by this beautiful story next week, which is when he hears the whisper of God 
He hears the voice of God in a profound way. And right in the middle, here's the thing, right in the middle of a series of characteristics of, of, of characteristics of growing as a strong believer in Christ, we find defeat. And I wonder what we do with it. What do you do with defeat? I am going to suggest that defeat is part of the process. I think it's part of the maturing process in the life of the believer. If it wasn't so, then every time we felt defeated, guess what? We feel like we have taken multiple steps backwards and we're not growing spiritually and God doesn't have, is not in, in that. And I think God is in the midst of building and developing greater character in the midst of our greatest hardships and defeats and our greatest discouragements. And if it were not so, then we, they are completely out of place for the Christian. So we must put them back in the middle of our storyline of how people grow to become spiritually mature. That's my premise this morning. And um, so it's, it's a lot like me snowboarding, by the way, just a quick little illustration. So I used to snowboard. I'm a, I'm a downhill skier. Ever, ever since I was a kid. And so my kids wanted to snowboard, so we all took snowboarding lessons. Well, that day, my wife breaks her wrist, so she's done with snowboarding, our very first attempt up in, in Big Bear. But I actually kind of liked it. It was kind of fun. It was a change. It was, feels like skateboarding to me. And, um, but I remember many times falling. And when you fall in snowboarding, it's a lot different than the skiing. You've got four edges and skis. You only have two and a snowboard. And when you're down, you're down. There's, there's no thought. There's no awareness. You're just, boom, you hit, you hit the snow hard, right? You've all done it. Or many of you have done it. And I remember one time I went back, my neck, my neck snapped back, and I went, I'll never do this again. This is horrible. And it was that fast, you feel like you've fallen. And I think that's what happened to Elijah. It was that fast, it was sudden, it was so, it just, it happened so quickly that Elijah went from victory to defeat. And we've got to explore that and understand what in the world is going on. And one of my first thoughts on this thing is that moving from victory to defeat, we need to be ready. Because you're in good company. A lot of great people have fallen in defeat and despair and despondence and even discouragement. A lot of great people. Uh, you, the lists are long of people that have experienced a hardship, a discouragement, a, a, a defeat of some sort, and they got back up. Proverbs 24, verse 16. The righteous person falls how many times? Seven. Now, it's probably just a reference to, like, when Jesus, when Jesus was asked by the disciples, how many times should we forgive him? What does he say? Seven times 70. He wasn't giving a number. He was saying, as, as often as you're hurt, forgive. Just keep doing it. Because the righteous person is going to continue to fall seven times. And he's, what happens? He's going to get back up. She's going to get back up. We're going to get back up. The key is getting back up after a defeat. And I think defeat tells us far more about our character than success. And I think what we're going to see in the life of Elijah is a greater development of character in his life and what 
happens as a result of this, read the rest of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings, and you see a very, very powerful individual. And I think it came through this moment in time when he went through his greatest struggle. And do not discount that in the development of your faith. I think it's part of it. And I think a lot of times we're afraid. We're afraid of it. Success tells us a lot about God. Failure tells us a lot about ourselves. Not the other way around. Character is developed in the valleys. Oswald Chambers. I relied heavily on this particular entry in um, my, utmost, my utmost for his highest in April uh, 16th, his entry. Can you come down? Can you come down? That was the whole premise of my book that Elijah's life is a series of descents and ascents. That it's not just one ascent, it's the process of ascending, but also descending and reascending again. That's the Christian life. We all have moments when we feel better than our best, and we say, I feel fit for anything. Be careful. If only I could be like this always. It's, it's, it's Elijah on Mount Carmel feeling the, the full sense of exhilaration of victory. And you've all been there. And we've had those. And then he says, those moments are moments of insight which we have to live up to when we do not feel like it. In other words, there will be times when we don't feel like it's a good day. Many of us are no good for this workaday world when there is no high hour. He calls it a high hour. In other words, it's not the other way around. Commonplace versus the high hour. How to live in the commonplace of life with the realization that God has given us those high hours, those victories. But don't stay too long in the victory. You'll spoil it. You'll spoil it. And I think that's what's going on in this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at the context in a second. We are most vulnerable, not after a defeat, but after a, a victory. We live in the valleys. We relish in the mountains and not the other way around. I keep coming back to that same idea. Hopefully you've got that. We live in the valleys. We relish in the mountains. We need victories. We need God to show up. We want to see his power. We want to see a miracle. We want to believe in that. And sure enough, we do. And we see it all over. I was reviewing uh, an email my son sent our whole family when he was up at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And it just happened to be in this file on Elijah many, many years ago. I think back in 2015 or something. And it was a really, really bad day in his life. Got a ticket. Then he got another, he got a car, a ticket in his car, then he had a ticket on his bike, and then something else happened, and something else happened, and all these series of things happened, and he wrote our family and told us all about it, and it's this one-page email, and he's never done this before, and, and then he started listing all the things that God had done during that day, and how he, he went to go find bread at this bread shop, and they said, oh, this is a commercial bread, we don't sell, but you're welcome to bread in the back. All the used bread, all the used bread, the, the leftover bread, <laughs> the used bread. You know what I'm saying. And these little things happened that reminded him of God's presence in a really, really bad situation. And we all need that, right? We do. 
We live on that. We really live on it, like bread. Um, so let's look at the context, and then I want to look at the life of Elijah from the perspective of what happened in his defeat. Let's not be afraid of defeat. Listen, you may call it defeat. You may call it despair, discouragement. Uh, don't be afraid of it. It's part of our spiritual development. We need to be honest with one another. Um, so I want to jump back into verse 41 and all the way to verse 46 of chapter 18, because once Elijah slays the prophets of Baal, he then turns to Ahab and says, it's going to start to rain. He begins to pray. And he prays three times, and all of a sudden, he's literally on his knees praying, and the rain clouds come, and all of a sudden, it's starting to thunder, and it's going to rain like it's never rained before. Three and a half years. It's a dry, uh, arid uh, land, and they are about to receive literally flash floods. And that's what happens in the desert. It turns to flash floods. So he tells Ahab, get on your chariot and get going and get back to Je Jezreel. It's going to be bad out there. Get home quickly. That's what he tells him. And then it says, though the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Which is an interesting thing. He outruns him. The picture I have in my mind is Mr. Incredible's son. Remember Pash? How he just would run around. He'd just be like, he'd run. That was his superpower hero power, right? Mr. Incredible's son, Pashil Par was his name, right? Huh? But I think it was Pashil. Dashil. Dashil. Okay, I have been corrected by the woman who has many children. So there we go. So Dashel Parr, thank you. I did know that. And anyway, so I have this picture of him just like, just running through the desert. And it's a 25-mile run, and he outruns a chariot. It's a very odd scene. What do you do with that? What I do with that is I ask my question, Elijah, what are you thinking? Really, seriously, honestly. Why are you going to Jezreel when you know Jezebel is there and she hates your guts? The one person on the face of the earth that probably hates you more than anybody else that wants to see you dead is this woman. And you know that. God's already told you to go hide while you pronounce judgment over the land because the king and queen, the prophet and the king never had a good relationship in Israel. Never. They were always in trouble. And so he knew that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Samuel, they were always in trouble with the king. And so I'm just wondering why in the world he's doing this. And sure enough, he runs ahead in this, what I consider to be potentially, possibly a victory lap. It sure seems like he's grandstanding to me. And I want us to think seriously about victory and how we handle victory in our lives. Be careful. Stay humble. I think there's a lesson in there. I think he's fatigued. He's excited. He's just slayed the prophets of Baal. There's so much going, so much emotion in him. And he's so excited, he runs ahead thinking, I'm invincible. I mean, look what's just happened in the land. I can handle this. I can handle anything. I just slayed the prophets. I mean, Jezebel has nothing on me. And so all of this is going on. It's circumstantial, no question. And all of a sudden, something really terrible is about to happen. And I just want us to be really careful about that. If you're not ready for the victory, the fall after will ravish the wind. 
and I mean by ravish, hold hostage. Victories are spotlights that become limelights if we're not careful. And so the fallout happens. And the fallout is in three kind of stages. There's a, there's a fear, there's some bad, bad brain chemistry going on, and there's some marred thinking. And I want to talk about how we recover. So in the first one here, um, Ahab is now aware that Jezebel sent, is sent a message and uh, wants his life. Now that sounds like verbal abuse, right? Somebody's after you and says, I put a death threat in your life and tomorrow you're going to be dead. You're going to have some emotional trauma over that. I mean, there's a level of emotional trauma when you experience somebody who shows up on your life with that level of um, uh, elevated emotional uh, reaction. You're, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna fall into a, a state of emotional despair at some level or another. And sure enough, he fears for his life and runs into the desert and comes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, leaves his servant there. He himself went, goes a day's journey into the wilderness and sits under a juniper tree. He's absolutely afraid. And my first thought is, um, is this. He has lost his focus. When we fear our circumstances more than we fear God himself, we lose our focus. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that it is that simple in our lives, that it is that easy, that we just, just turn this thing around because you just re, re, refocus your life. But I am suggesting it's something that we all can do. I'm aware that refocusing our lives is really important in the process of overcoming defeat. I'm not suggesting that uh, it, it is the uh, end-all answer and it is easy. It's not. It's not the only answer. But it most certainly is our biblical response. And it should be... Um, uh, uh, listen to in Psalm 121. Uh, I love what the psalmist says. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. Where will I look? I will look to the Lord. I'm looking for it, but it, I don't need it. Um, Psalm 121. It's a beautiful path. Where am I looking? Am I looking to the? Am I looking to the Lord, or am I looking to my circumstances? All sorts of things happen in our lives. All sorts of circumstances happen. And we become, we experience what Elijah experiences in many ways. Where is our look? Where are we looking? Um, Matt Richel uh, is a New York Times writer. And he just recently wrote an article on um, adolescence and depression. And the rise of mental illness among young people in America, which is rising, and it has been rising for a long time. And it was around way before the, before the uh, COVID, um, the spread of COVID and isolation and all the things that we experienced. Those simply intensified things. And what he looks at is the internal risks that cause um, some of this adolescent depression that he sees uh, in America. And he's writing in several articles. I heard him interviewed on CNN and and uh, on several other places, and um, he's reporting on this, and one of them is isolation, no question. Isolation is very dangerous. 
because when we isolate, we lose our focus because we don't have another voice in our lives. He also mentioned smartphones, of all things. Isn't that interesting? Smartphones, he is actually putting that in the middle of his research saying, be aware of that. I'm not making any you know, uh, judgments here or, or I'm not even um, prescribing. I'm just saying, I'm just simply pointing it out that there is a caution here when it comes to smartphones and young people, even in, as we get older. How dependent are we? Because what's happening, and it gives, gives all this research data about what's happening in the mind, <clears throat> and we're losing our focus. Social media is another one. He lists social media as well as giving us the wrong perspective rather than the right perspective. And of course, he's not leaning as we are to what God has to say about us and what the scriptures teach us. And I want to point out one other thing that you might not have seen in this passage, but notice when he runs to Beersheba many miles away, and then what is the next thing he does? What does the text tell us? He leaves his servant behind. Not a good idea. He becomes isolated. There are times to be alone, and there are other times not to be alone. And I think Elijah left his servant and wandered another day into the desert, and he was in deep trouble, already overcome with fear, fatigued, tired, hungry, emotionally uh, spent. This is a recipe for disaster. Lost his focus. Of all people, he should have, he should have kept his focus. And I'm, I'm careful with saying should because um, it happens. It really does. Let's not be too hard on this man because it happens in our own lives. And so he's left his servant and now he hides. He's isolated. He's alone. And he's in his own thoughts. And the next thing we know is that he's now sitting on a juniper tree. And number two is I think this bad brain chemistry sets in. I have no other way of saying it, but bad, bad brain chemistry is what we call um, complete despair, clinical depression. And whether he was in clinical depression or not, that's debatable. I mean, you can, you can debate that and say, no, he was okay, just needed food, he needed water, he needed sleep, and he was up and running again. But I see signs of clinical depression in this passage. Having experienced it myself and walked through as a family uh, with clinical depression um, for many, 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 many years, having read on the subject, it sure seems really clear that there are signs of it in this passage. Um, he requested for himself that he might die. Those are not passing words. Those are not words you just simply write in the scriptures and say, well, he's just having a bad day. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. I am not better than my father's. He lays down, he sleeps under a juniper tree. His mood is altered. He's lost sleep. He's hungry. He's exhausted. And what he wants to do is sleep, and he just keeps sleeping. Arise and eat, the angel says, and touches him. And he looks, and behold, there was his head of bread, a baked a cake bread uh, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he sat and ate, and he went back to sleep. The angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him, and said, Arise and eat again. This is a period of time. 
the journey is too great for you. And then he gets up and he, and he drinks and eats again and um, went in the strength that the food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, Mount Horeb gave him to the mountain of God. And what I want to suggest in this passage is that it is possible in the midst of despair and discouragement that something happens within our brain. It doesn't always happen. It's at different levels. Depression comes in different levels. Some people go through depression and they're able to get out of it. Some people aren't. Some people live with it. Some people discover it later in their lives. Uh, Dr. Jameson is a, um, uh, a professor at John Hopkins in psychotherapy who experienced it later in her life, mid, kind of mid-life, and discovered manic depression in her own life, and ended up doing her internship at UCLA, UCLA Neuropsych Unit, the exact place our son was at, for eight months. And she describes her own uh, journey with manic depression in unquiet, an unquiet uh, soul. And then she writes another book uh, entitled Touched by Fire, where she's describing the thin line between genius and madness, what she calls it, that um, over 60% of artists, poets, and very, very creative people struggle with depression, that when you let your mind delve into the creative world, that often what happens is there's a level of depression that happens, and she literally lists every single great poet and, and artist and literary genius of modern times that has struggled with depression. Churchill called it the black dog. I originally entitled this section of my book, Just Kill the Damn Dog. Because it's like, after doing all this research, it's like, what do you do with the thing? Just kill it. I mean, you read about Churchill. I went to the Churchill uh, war rooms in, in London, and was, you know, I didn't know that Churchill had suffered most of his life from childhood from, with depression. And look at the greatness that happened in his life even as he worked through depression. But there was a series of letters in one of these folders and I started reading the letters and it was when he was in boarding school and his parents were away and he was actually calling for his parents, come, visit me, please come and visit me, I'm lonely, I'm hurting. And I believe at that time in his life, he was probably experiencing some circumstances that, re that resulted in what would later be known as depression in his life, and he would call them the black dog. But bad brain chemistry is what it is. There's really no other way to say it. Um, William Styron uh, wrote Stove, Sophie's Choice. He's a, he's a literary genius, and he, he was a novelist, and he struggled with depression in his life, he wrote Darkness Visible. And in Darkness Visible, he describes his own path, his journey through it, and describes what he has, um, what he says was kind of his way out. Fortunately, what he describes is the, is the, the self in the midst of depression, which is a, a change within the brain chemical. Serotonin is the brain chemical that gives us mood and determines health and healing to the body and happiness and uh, appetite and sexual desire and all the things that we have when, you, when you're depleted with your serotonin, when it's not crossing the neurotransmitters in your brain, um, what happens is the mood changes and the body begins to shut down. And there's a brain chemistry that happens and a person falls into this level of depression. And he talks a lot about that as, as well as many others. 
And he says then at some point, what happens is a second self develops in the mind and begins to plan the escape. And this is a very dangerous place. We're talking about death by suicide. And 2020, 2021, maybe close close to 45,000 people took their lives by suicide. It's a very, very serious issue. And in most cases, it was caused by depression. Uh, This is a really hard topic, isn't it? Because you touch any home and it bleeds, one psychologist said. And there's probably not a person in this room that has not been impacted in some way or another by some level of mental mental illness. And sometimes we just look at that and go, well, that's a, that's a, uh, a bad brain or that, that's a, that's, somebody needs to get over that quickly. How do we help them? How do we get them out of this? Or we're embarrassed by it and we don't seek the help we need or we cover over it when it's right there in the midst of our country, in our society, and there's an epidemic and it's a disease like cancer is. And when you have cancer, you go and get help. You do, don't you? We go get help. And so many people that suffer from depression don't get help. Well, Styron leads, reaches out to his wife. He's hospitalized. And through a pharmacological, that's a big word, pharmacological treatment plan and rest, he begins um, to find healing in his brain. Um, He died at the age of 80 by way of pneumonia, I read. Um, And we don't know. I don't know the rest of his life, but I think he probably suffered most of his life as a result of that. In 2 Samuel 24, 14, David says, I am in deep distress. In Psalm 25, 16, he says, I am lonely and afflicted. In Psalm 38, 6, and verse 8, I am troubled, mourning my groaning because of my turmoil is great in my heart. David was aware of it. I want you to see something. The angel of the Lord came and brought him food. The angel of the Lord came and brought him water. And the angel of the Lord allowed him to sleep. Those are all really good things. It's health to the body. We need that. We need it. And that was part of his healing. But I want you to see something else in the text that I have never seen before. And it says twice the angel of the Lord came and did what? Touched him. Who said that? Touched him. Touched him. You know, 20 times in the Gospels, Jesus touched or was touched. And healing came from his body. Touched eyes. Touched leprosy. I believe God touches the part of us that is broken, that is sick. And my little theory, my I'm stepping out on a, 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 a I, what's the what's the idiomatic expression? I'm on a what? I am stepping out on a limb. I was thinking of the pirates when they had the little thing that goes out and they're pushing the guy on the plank. But that's a really bad way to see this. (laughs) But here's my thinking. Just, I'll be honest with you. And when the Lord touched him, I think he brought healing to his, his, the part of him that was most sick. And when you see a person who wants to die and they're in deep depression, they're sleeping and they're not eating, and there's signs of it. I think the Lord touched his brain 
and brought some healing. Now, we're trying to, we're trying to diagnose a 9th century patient in the 21st century. That's hard, isn't it, for us? Because we, know, we have all this knowledge. And God understands that. And I think medicine and miracles often go hand in hand. I'm a perfect example of that. I had, I had pain in my stomach, pain in my chest when I was swimming. I went to see my doctor. Uh, an angiogram that showed that I had a 90% blocked artery, my left arterial descending artery, my LAD. They call it the Widowmaker. They put a stent in. Many years later, it thrombosed. I had a blood clot. Um, and uh, the blood found the stent and blocked 100% my LAD, which in most cases is instant death. Instant. And I had a heart attack. And I remember Lake Arrowhead, and many of you know this story, lying on that couch. And I remember looking out the window in the midst of having a heart attack after I called my buddy Dean who lives up there and says, you need to come now. And I didn't want to go to the hospital. I didn't want help. And I finally said, oh, this is ridiculous. I have to get help. And I finally overcame my defiance and my stubbornness. And I called him. He called Denise, and they called the ambulance, and on my way, and I had a heart attack. And I remember looking out the, the window that, at that moment when Dean wasn't there yet. And I looked out the window, and it was, you know, it, was, it, it snowed about four feet. It was many years ago. It was probably the biggest snow since this most recent snow. And I heard the Lord say, you're not going to die today. And I just had that... I ha now, it's easy to say that now, right? Of course I didn't. He was right. <laughs> that's, the that's, the, that's part of my faith. I question things. Like, did he really say that? I mean, obviously he said it because here I am. And yet I really truly believe that I heard that and there was a sense of calmness that came over me. And sure enough, down, down the hill we went with chains on the ambulance, and they had to stop to um, take the chains off. And an hour later, I was in a cath lab again and another stent and, um, and uh, on my way to healing. And then many years later, diverticulitis led to um, a colon, um, colon issue, an infected colon that actually adhered to my stomach, and it had my, a section of my colon had to be removed. And sure enough, sur surgery healed that, and I am here today because God has done miracles in my life. Now, I say that, and I say God was part of that, but I also say that doctors did their job, and medicine does their job. And so I will say that if Elijah, if Lexapro was available in the 9th century BC, my theory is Elijah would have been on it. I kind of think of what he would have. And take it for what it, for what it is, um, I think it's part of the process. And my last and final point uh, this morning as we close. Um, after, brain, after the brain begins to shut down, what often happens is, um, is some really bad thinking. And I want you to just see his bad thinking. Because notice what happened. Notice what he does. By the way, I'm giving you the solution along the way here. But um, in this next section, he goes to the cave and, and the Lord comes and says, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm zealous of the Lord. I'm the only one left. And your covenant has been torn, you know, the altars have been torn down and everybody's forsaken your covenant and they've killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek my life. They seek my life to take it away. 
That's bad thinking. Because none of that's true. No, 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 no. You are not the last one left. They are not seeking to kill you. Just one person is. Do you see that? We often get into bad thinking when we get into these places and all of a sudden our thinking is marred and we're saying things that aren't true. And they're not true. And I think what Elijah had to do is, and then what does God do? Well, come closer. Come out of that cave. Come out of the cave of your bad thinking and I am going to tell you something. And I'm going to whisper it. I would love to know what God whispered. And in that moment, I think he is transformed from bad thinking. Uh, Jameson, Dr. Jameson, calls depression, uh, says depression affects not only mood, but also the nature and content of thought. Edward Thomas, the great poet, wrote about his own depression, dullness and thickness of brain describes depression in his own life. Rather than seeing, as Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I see the Lord seated on the throne. I see the Lord. Do you see clearly? And are you thinking clearly? Here's my final thoughts. Three. Number one, be aware of circumstances. Just be aware of them. I'm not suggesting you can by any way say that it, this is all circumstantial. It's not. In some cases, it's hereditary. In other cases, it's right after birth. It's giving birth. There's all sorts of reasons people go into a place of despair and despondence. Some, some are as a result of consequences. Others, we were born. We don't know all. You can't possibly say it's this reason. There's lots of reasons. But be at least aware of your circumstances. Be aware of what's going on. Be mindful. Number two, stay healthy. Your mind, your body, Get rest, eat well, take care of yourself, take care of your brain. Um, when you starve the brain, it does have the possible side effect of breaking down the neurotransmitters. And so eating disorders often lead to depression. The third thing I'm going to say is seek help. That's why we live in a community of faith. That's why David reached out um, and that's why um, the angel came to, to, to Elijah. And um, that's why we found even Jesus taking his disciples with him to um, the Garden of Gethsemane. In his greatest point of despair, um, he brought his friends. That's why we're here. And we shouldn't be embarrassed. We shouldn't write it off as something that uh, is taboo in our culture or society or in the Christian community or faith, but it is something for us to recognize God can often do his greatest work because in most cases, we can get through it and people get through it. They really do. So let's pray. So as um, Taylor comes up to lead us, Father, we are, um, we are humble before you. You give us great victories, but even in our defeats, we recognize the power, the power of your restorating, restoration and love in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Todd. Um, well, one of, the, one of the beauties of life with Jesus is that God meets us, like we see in the life of Elijah. And we see that nowhere more clearly than on Jesus' cross 
the God of the universe meeting us, coming one of, becoming one of us and meeting us in our sin and brokenness, carrying it on his own back on the cross. So we're going to take a moment to remember Jesus' cross right now as we consider what God might be speaking to us, how he might want to meet us with wherever we are, um, whatever darkness or despair um, we are feeling now or may feel in the future, have felt in the past. And so I'm going to just invite us to all stand and um, you can... Uh, collect elements in the back, the table at the back, come back to your seat, and we'll, uh, we'll take the Lord's Supper together in just one moment. So uh, please stand, collect your elements, and uh, we'll come back together in a second. Well, um, as we close here, um, one of the beauties of life with Jesus is that he does meet us and he meets us exactly where we're at and invites us to be exactly where we're at in his presence. Um, Hebrews 4 tells us to come to the throne of grace with confidence that we receive mercy in our time of need. And so right now, before we um, remember Jesus's cross, um, I just wanna create a brief moment here to practice casting our anxieties on the Lord. Jesus came in his death as a substitute for our sin. He covers our sin, but he also came to heal us of our brokenness, which is an ongoing process that we won't fully experience until uh, the, the new creation at the end of the culmination of history, but he's working that out in us now. And so we're gonna take a moment to bring whatever we need to bring before him, um, just in a moment of quiet. So right now, if there's anything that's just kind of heavy on your heart, anything that um, you just need to invite the Lord into, not as something that's a sin to confess, but just a reality of life, an experience of life that you need to invite him into. Um, I'm just going to create some space for us to do that right now, to put into practice what the scripture tells us in 1 Peter 5, to cast our anxieties on him because he cares. So right now, let's just take a moment of quiet, take a deep breath. If there's anything you just need to let God into. Let's just name it before him right now. It's a fear, a doubt, a point of insecurity, a feeling of despair. On the night Jesus was betrayed, um, he took the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. And so now together, 
let's take in remembrance of his body broken for us. And he took the cup. He said, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for you. So let's take together and do so in remembrance of Jesus who meets us exactly where we're at. we thank you for that truth. Thank you that you're doing a healing work in us and sometimes the process is very long. Thank you that you treat us as a whole person with a soul and a body and an emotional life and you want to do a work in us in every area of our lives. So whatever we need, God, um, in this season, um, if we need a nap, um, Lord, would we hear from you that we need to take a nap if we need to see professional help would you give us the courage to reach out and ask for help? Um, if we need community, would you provide us community? Um, if we need to refocus our thoughts on you and what you say to be true, would you help us to do that? But whatever it is, Lord, whoever we're bringing in, whatever season of life we're in, um, thank you that you, you love all of us. And uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close off our time in worship? Singing, God, I look to you. Sing, God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you, you're where my help comes from, give me wisdom, you know just what, sing that again, and God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed, give me vision. To see things like you do, God, I look to you, you're where my help comes from, give me wisdom, you know just what to do, and I will love you, Lord, my Sing hallelujah.
struggles will come. May we look to God because he meets us where we're at. Amen. He's able to pierce through the darkest of darks and supply us with joy and peace that we cannot even understand. So when we reach those times, may we cling on to him and even in the joyous times, may we pray for that. May we pray for our strength so that we are able to meet him as he meets us. Amen. Let's go from this place. Um, have a great rest of your Sunday. <laughs>